Amen. Turn your Bible to Job 42. We walk through the last uh, verses that we'll be looking at. As I said, next week we'll go one more time over the entire book. But uh, today we get to look at these final words. And as I do, I remember reading this and, and thinking about this in terms of a happy ending. Everyone loves a happy ending, especially if the story has been filled with peril, uh, with suffering and extreme valor and many obstacles overcome. Obviously, there are some super mature literary folks, perhaps even in our midst, from time to time that require a more convoluted and murky end to the stories that they love. They look on the standard happy ending as trite and overworked, maybe. So the hero of the tale dying unfulfilled with the quest having not having been achieved and without him making it safely home, they get excited about such stories. They seem to them more realistic. I think those folks are weird. <laughs> they say, after all, we're not children. We don't always have to have the happy ending. I don't know about you, but I do. I want the happy ending. I think amazingly, God agrees with all of us children. Jesus himself said, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So this little child wants the happy ending. Amen? And children's bedtime stories always have happy endings. The usual fairy tale ending is, and they lived happily ever after. J.R.R. Tolkien understood the need for a happy ending, for within his famous Hobbit stories, Bilbo Baggins is the historian of the whole proceedings, and he was speaking to Gandalf the wizard, describing how he wanted to finish his life. Quote, I want to see mountains again, Gandalf, mountains, and then find somewhere where I can rest in peace and quiet without a lot of relatives prying around and a string of confounded visitors hanging on the bell. I might find somewhere where I can finish my book. And I've thought of a nice ending for it. And he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Well, that sounds pretty good. A happy ending to our story. But it's only, according to Bilbo, to the end of our days. The standard fairy tale, I think, has it a little better. They lived happily ever after. That sounds to me infinitely better. Happily ever after. That means for all eternity. Now, the book of Job ends on a triumphant note. Job was completely vindicated by Almighty God, vindicated in every way. Job's friends, friends were rebuked soundly. Job's earthly wealth was restored double. Job and his wife had the joy of ten more children. Job lived to a very old age. But then what? Then what? Job got none of his questions answered in this life, it seems, at least not in the text. Job and his wife did have ten more children, but any parent knows that new children cannot in any way replace dead children. We also know that Job understood the vulnerability of all earthly situations better than he ever did before. If the first pile of wealth can be taken away in a single day, then so can the next one. True security cannot be found in this world, in this present age of pain, sorrow, and death. The book of Job, as we've seen, does not give all the answers. 
the problem of death, the problem of eternity are not clearly addressed in this book. But the Holy Spirit has assigned to different books of the Bible different dimensions of the story. And we know that the final chapter of Job's life actually is unending. Eternity in the presence of God, glorious, wealthy, with a wealth that can never be taken, with perfect relationships with his wife and children that can never end. Christ Jesus, the Savior, the Lord of heaven and earth, must come along in the fullness of time and write Job's final chapter with his own blood on the cross and in his own mighty triumph over death at the resurrection. To Christ alone must belong the right to open wide the gates of eternity and give the true final chapter to the lives of all of his elect children. Eternity in resurrection bodies, in a resurrected world called the new heavens and the new earth, dwelling in a glorious eternal city called the new Jerusalem with an eternal education in the glory of God which will include, I believe, a backward history lesson in which all of God's purposes are eternally revealed and explained to the everlasting joy and satisfaction of his people. Now that sounds like a happy ending. Amen? Amen. Job's final chapter was not written, therefore, in the book of Job, but will be in eternity. All questions answered. All love relationships restored. All wealth perfectly secure. All health perfectly and eternally guaranteed. This is the happy ending the Bible promises all believers in Jesus Christ. And that's where we're heading in this morning's sermon. Job living happily ever after to all eternity, not merely to the end of his days. So we begin with God vindicating Job. And it starts with God severely rebuking Eliphaz and his two friends. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Imagine having the great God the Almighty God, the God who had just spoken to Job out of a, a, a mighty whirlwind, now speak to you directly and say to you, I am angry with you. Well, what terror could be greater than that? Jeremiah 10.10 says, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Again, Psalm 104, verse 32. He who looks at the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. We don't know if Job heard these words that were spoken to Eliphaz or if God spoke them later to Eliphaz, maybe directly or maybe in a dream. We don't know. In any case, Eliphaz must have been stripped of all pride and leveled by these words. How humbling this must have been. And God refutes Eliphaz's doctrine and establishes Job's doctrine in its place. Eliphaz's faulty doctrine, which is, as we saw, the simple application of the law of retribution. You reap what you sow. God sees to that. 
God blesses the righteous with earthly blessings, and he curses the wicked with earthly curses. That's the simple law of retribution. That was their theology. Well, according to God, it's faulty about God. You have not spoken about me what is right. It is, of course, partly true. We noted that at the time. God does sometimes reward the righteous with earthly blessings, and he does sometimes bring immediate earthly judgments on the wicked. But as theologian J.I. Packer said, a half-truth masquerading as the whole truth becomes a complete untruth. The sheer authority of Almighty God is on display here to shut down these three men and all their river of words just like that. You are wrong. End of debate. Notice that God does not directly vindicate Job concerning the wicked things that Eliphaz had said about Job, like, is not your wickedness endless? Remember that one? Job 22.5. God doesn't focus on that. He didn't say, you have not spoken what is right about my servant Job. No, the issue is their view of God. You have not spoken what is right about me, he says. Yet, God does vindicate Job, doesn't he? By calling him my servant. And not just once, but several times. My servant, my servant. Just like at the beginning of the book when he said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, in effect, he's saying the same thing to Eliphaz. And through Eliphaz to Bildad and Zophar. And through the three of them to the entire community who knew Job. They will all hear of God's words concerning Job. God's vindication of Job. And furthermore, God vindicates Job's doctrine. Again, multiple times. Verse 7. I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And then again in verse 8. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. It's emphasizing that. Now we know that God is not here validating everything Job said. That's just not true. Oh, if that were true, then why would God have begun talking to Job with these words in Job 38.2? Who is this that darkens my counsel by speaking words without knowledge? That's not God vindicating everything Job said, not at all. And why then also would Job have repented of his own words, saying in Job 42.3, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me. So then, the question remains, how then did Job speak what was right about God? Well, I think we should go back to the beginning of the book to see that. Remember where it said that in all these things, Job did not sin in what he said against God. So back in Job 1.21, it says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So I would start there. That's true, according to God. That's true. And again, in Job 2.10, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I think we would say the same thing. That perspective is accurate. It's right. All things come from God. So that was Job at his best, and it did line up with reality, it seems, according to God. God also then honors Job as his servant. He honors him. It is powerful vindication for God to say, my servant Job, 
my servant Job, my servant Job. That's powerful vindication. What could be higher commendation than that? And I believe in heaven, the essence of our rewards, the best part of our rewards, will be commendation from Almighty God. Amen? Praise from God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful to have God say that to us. Or as Jesus himself said in John 12, 26, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. We will not get higher commendation than that, higher reward than that. To have Almighty God honor us for how we served Christ. And so, won't that be something? To have Almighty God speak your name from his throne and call you by name his servant. What higher commendation could there be? What higher vindication in all eternity? Then God restores Job's ministry as intercessor. Just as powerfully Eliphaz is humbled by God requiring him to go back to Job to intercede for him. Verse 8, now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. So remember at the beginning of the book, Job's piety was established by his intercessory life for his children. Remember how he would send and have them purified, thinking perhaps they had sinned in their hearts, cursed God in their hearts. Job was a prayer warrior for his children. Now that role has been reestablished, actually enhanced, because God specifically spoke of it. And how humbling for Eliphaz and for Bildad and Zophar to have their lives and their prosperity now in Job's hands as intercessor. There is a clear threat from God. If you don't go to him, I will deal with you according to your folly. I will deal with you according to your foolish words. But if Job intercedes for you, I will restore you and you will not be dealt with as you truly deserve. Also notice, whenever you have animal sacrifice, whenever you have this kind of intercession by a godly man for others, you have a foretaste or a shadow of Christ's priestly ministry for all of us. A picture of what Christ does for all of us. In Hebrews 9, 13 and 14, it says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Jesus is the great mediator, the great intercessor. His sacrifice, the perfect final end animal sacrifice. His intercession, he constantly lives at the right hand of God to intercede for us. And on that basis, we are made right with God. And God doesn't deal with us according to our folly. Secondly, God restores Job's earthly blessings. So this is the sequence. First, Job prayed, then God blessed him. So Job was under obligation too. He had to act as an intercessor for his friends. Look at verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, 
did what uh, the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. To some degree, it seems like Job's own restoration awaited his intercession for his friends. They would be restored together. And so this is a picture of how vital it is for us when we pray to set aside any bitterness or any unforgiveness that we may have toward anyone else, or God will not hear our prayer. As he says very plainly in Mark eleven twenty five, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may forgive you, you your sins. Mark eleven twenty five. So Job has to put aside any bitterness he may have toward his friends and pray for them, and all of them, the four of them together, to some degree, restored at the same time. God made then Job prosperous again. A twofold or a double restitution. Look at verse 10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as before. All of his earthly prosperity was restored and actually doubled. Verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of, his, of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. So if you go back to Job 1, you realize that the chapter did the math for us. Isn't it wonderful that math always works? Math is math. It will always be the same. So in case you had trouble with that or needed your calculator on the whole doubling thing, it just does it for you. From 7,000 sheep to 14,000. That's pure doubling. From 3,000 camels to 6,000. Again doubled. From 500 oxen to 1,000. And from 500 donkeys to 1,000. Now, we need to realize this didn't happen all at once. Like the next morning he awoke and poof, there they were. Now that would be something. Some instant donkeys, some instant camels and all that. I think not. I think this was an unfolding, developing prosperity that God did over many years. This is just how it ended up. Year by year, Job got to see this happening before his very eyes. The prosperity of the Lord. And God also, more significantly, healed Job's reputation in the community. One of the bitterest aspects of Job's trial was his loss of reputation. The public shame is one of the things we fear the most and with good reason. Before all of this came upon him, before any of these trials came upon him, remember Job was like a prince in that city. He was the, the, the primary citizen of that, of that city. He was honored at the city gate Men used to come to get his wisdom and help them make key decisions. Back in Job 29, 24, and 25, it says, When I smiled at them, they could scarcely believe it. The light of my face was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comforts mourners. That's what it used to be like, he said. Well, all of that went away when his sufferings came upon him. It seems that the friends, in their attitude toward Job, were representing the normative view of the community about Job. He must truly be a wicked man. His wickedness must be great to have this level of trial come upon him. They all bought into that, it seems. Remember, he said his wife couldn't stand him. Job said his breath was offensive to her. It seems like his family, his extended family, all stayed away from him had nothing to do with him. Remember how he lamented how his name had become like a laughingstock. In Job 30, verse 9 and 10, he said, but now their sons mock me in song. 
I have become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. So that must have been incredibly difficult for him to lose all of that esteem from other people. But when God spoke and vindicated Job, all of that was reversed. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who cares who's against you if God is for you? But his family understood the significance of his vindication. And his family, both close and extended family and many others from the community, now they wanted to get near him again. They wanted to come and be with him again. Look at verse 11. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted him and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. Now, Job could have been bitter. He could have said, where were all of you when I needed you? Why didn't you believe in me then? When I needed you the most, you kept your distance from me. But he didn't. He accepted their changed demeanor toward him with grace and dignity. And I think it's appropriate for a man who's been humbled by God, he's not going to be arrogant toward others. When you get vertically humbled by God and you realize who you are in the sight of God and yet God loves you through Christ, horizontally you're going to be gracious toward the sins and failings of others. How could you not? And so that's how Job is. He's very gracious with them. And then God used them to begin restoring Job's wealth. Again, a long time frame. Look at verse 11. It says, They comforted and consoled him over all the troubles the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. So these are significant uh, gifts. One preacher I listened to as I was working on this sermon said this was something like the ancient version of a GoFundMe account set up for Job. You know, all the family showed up with a little kind of starter money for him because he's just stripped, doesn't have anything left, and so they all want to kind of contribute to the pot. The hat was passed, and they, they dropped in some money. They wanted to help. But these gifts are significant under the blessing of God, I would think. And uh, there would be a connection between these initial gifts and then the uh, ultimate prosperity that God brought in his life. And so it came back to him gradually over a long time frame. Then God blessed him and his wife, it seems, with children. Verse 13 through 15. Uh, He had also seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuch. And nowhere in all the land were found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Job's wife is not mentioned here, but I think it's best to assume that it's the same woman, uh, the same wife. Uh, Maybe she died. We have no reason to think. So let's assume it's the same one. And so she was elevated back to joy and back to honor along with her husband. And again, the number of of children is significant. Ten. Ten children. And the same thing with the sons. Seven sons and three daughters. All of that's significant. I'll speak more about them at the end of the sermon. But this shows how gradually God restored Job's earthly blessings. You don't get ten children in a month. That doesn't happen. So this restoration to earthly prosperity unfolded over years, even over decades. It's also noteworthy how prominently Job's daughters are mentioned. The Bible is generally, especially the Old Testament, written from a masculine point of view, a male-centered perspective, especially in genealogies. The genealogies tend to focus on fathers and sons. Occasionally daughters are mentioned, but often not. 
Uh, they're barely mentioned at all. But Job's daughters are singled out above their brothers. You don't know the brothers' names, but you know these daughters' names. And we also know that they're stunningly beautiful and that Job dearly loved them and gave them an inheritance along with his sons. Again, this is very unusual for the time. I don't know why this is, and this is just maybe me speaking as a dad, but there's nothing like a daughter, especially in your old age, which I haven't reached yet, but I anticipate (laughs) there'll be nothing like a daughter in my old age. But there's something tender about that, and maybe that's why the daughters are singled out. Job was a happy man to have such lovely comforters and such lovely blessings in his life, to lavish attention on him, and he did love them. And then it says, God blessed Job with a long life and with descendants, even to the fourth generation, verse 16. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. So that's just the language, that Old Testament language of blessing. It's wealthy, prosperous, family, esteem in the community, long life. But look at the final verse. And so he died old and full of years. Is that a happy ending? I think not. We need to understand what death is. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And God must have the final victory over that. And we're going to get to that in a minute, but I'm just telling you that's how this account ends. So we're waiting. We're waiting for the happy ending, the true happy ending. Now, next in Providence... In redemptive history, God in his wisdom and his goodness uses Job's story in every generation from now until this day. Job could never have known how much his suffering would strengthen the family of God over those generations. The larger purpose of God was hidden from Job. How could he have understood it? God could never have told Job how many of his despairing children, God's despairing children, in every generation for centuries and centuries would go back to this book of Job and read it and derive strength and nourishment from it. How could Job possibly know how many of of Job's spiritual children, so we look on him somewhat like a father Abraham figure. Job is one of the good fathers of the Bible, maybe one of the best fathers of the Bible. And we are, to some degree, his spiritual children. How many of us would be strengthened in suffering by his example, taught to persevere, taught to trust in the Lord and never give up just by reading this story? Job's mind would have been overwhelmed by the testimonies. They would be in the hundreds, in the thousands, in the tens of thousands, even in the millions, lined up as far as the eye could see to the horizon, coming one after the other and saying, I want you to know what your story meant to me in my life. I want you to know how your story enabled me to walk and my wife to walk through burying one of our children. I want you to know that. I want you to know what it was like for us to be destroyed by a tornado, have all of our crops destroyed, but then to realize from the book of Job God's good purposes in all of that. I want you to know my story, how God used the book of Job to walk me through the cancer treatments for my wife over two years, and then she finally succumbed and died. But you gave me a comfort in God's ultimate purpose in all of that. So God positioned Job for that role in our lives. 
And the Holy Spirit recorded this book for every generation of his elect to read. James, James makes this plain. James 5.11. It says, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance or patience and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So James in the New Testament just assumes you've read the story. You've heard of it. You know that story, right? Centuries later. And God has used Job's experience of extreme suffering to strengthen every generation of God's people since then. It's almost incalculable how many people have been blessed and sustained in their sufferings by the wisdom of this book. Now, James in the NIV, it says, you have seen what the Lord finally brought about, but the Greek is the telos of the Lord, the perfected or purpose of God in all this. There is a a final purpose in Job's story. And God's final purpose in Job's suffering is the salvation of his people. God's purposes go beyond earthly blessings. It says in Romans 8.28, we know that, that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. God actively causes all things, including all of our sufferings, to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, his telos, his final end. And what is that final purpose? The next few verses in Romans tell us, Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. That's God's purpose. And God then, going back to verse Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work together for good to the end that his elect will be glorified in heaven. And he uses sufferings to do that. That's the point of Job's story. 2 Corinthians four seventeen, Paul said it in a different way there. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Typical Pauline sentence, thick with logic and theology. He calls our sufferings light and momentary, but he also says they are achieving the final glory that God's working. They're intrinsic to getting us there. And so that's the lesson of the book of Job. As James made it plain earlier in James 1, 2 through 4, consider it pure joy, my brothers, Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you will be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So Job's example of patience in the face of suffering is powerful for us. All Christians must display perseverance in many afflictions. If we do not persevere, we are not genuine Christians. We are like the stony ground hearers that Jesus mentioned in Mark 4, 16, and 17. Others like seeds sown on rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. As Jesus said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And so God's purpose is the salvation of all the elect. God had the long view in mind, dear Christian brothers and sisters. He had you and me in mind. He had you and me in mind. He used Job. 
I mean, say that with great emphasis. He used him to help us. You can imagine Job saying, you used me. Yes, I did. (laughs) You used me to help all of my brothers and sisters. Yes, I did. Do you think now he thinks it was worth it? Yes, I do. And so God used Job. God wanted to feed your soul with strength, with wisdom, and with the example of Job. His sufferings, you know it, are greater than yours. His wrestling and his anguish and his words took you on a much-needed journey. God's powerful speech in the whirlwind spoke to you a necessary humbling wisdom. But God's final word always is Christ. Christ, whose righteousness is infinitely greater than Job's, whose sufferings were also infinitely greater than Job's, who actually did die when God had forbidden Satan from taking Job's life, but Christ did die. The big picture was always God's plan. And so the scripture is given here, these 42 chapters, to feed your faith to the end of your final salvation. Fourth, God blesses Job eternally. So the vindication and restoration of Job was dramatic. It must have been so moving to Job to have God speak such words of vindication to Job's friend Eliphaz and through him to the other two friends and then ultimately to the entire community and his family, all of that. And it must have been so powerful to see his earthly blessings accumulate. Not all at once, but in the end, that twofold blessing. So this is an earthly, earthly, earthly happy ending. However, the vindication and restoration of Job was incomplete and in no way finally satisfying. There is the matter, the simple matter of his ten children. The ten children. Well, which ten children? Well, that's the point. Any parent knows, any parent that has lost a child to death knows that the later birth of another child can never take the place of the dead one. Children are unique. And the ten new children Job and his wife had must have filled their hearts with joy. But they could never drive away the memories of their ten lost children. Those lost children were fully grown. They were into their adult lives. They had developed personalities. They each had stories of their own. And Job had a loving relationship with each one of them. And all of that was taken in a moment. Now he would have new relationships developing with his new children, but the pain of loss, of death, the final enemy, could not be fully assuaged by having ten new children. Furthermore, as we said, Job gets no explanation at all from God about his sorrows, no description of the original challenge from Satan in the heavenly realms, no explanation of the saving purpose he had towards subsequent generations of believers, Uh, no word at all. He just had the overpowering might of God appearing to him in a whirlwind, saying, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? That's what he got. And Job knew as never before how vulnerable all earthly blessings are. There was no guarantee that these replacements would not themselves be subsequently taken from him in an instant. Everything earthly is temporary. 2 Corinthians 4.18, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. James 4.14, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or again, Proverbs 23.5, cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. 
So Job's true vindication and restoration must be eternal, not earthly. In the new heavens and the new earth. And here is where we must finally end up. Everything in this world is temporary. For us Christians, earthly blessings are truly gifts from our loving Father. And in some sense, they are foretastes of heavenly joy. Some sense. But we cannot build our lives on earthly blessings. For everything that you own, everything you interact with, with your five senses, is temporary. All of it. However, we know that there is a new world coming. Amen? A new world is coming. Where all of the sorrows will be swallowed up in victory. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Or again, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne and said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. So the future resurrection of Job into that resurrected glorious world is Job's final vindication. And ours as well. Ours as well. Now, one last detail about Job's children. We notice that all of Job's earthly blessings were doubled, right? All of them. He got double this, double that, double the other. But he just got ten children. The children were not doubled. He, had, he lost ten children. God gave him ten children after his restoration. But what if all ten of the children that died in the first attack by Satan were themselves pious, godly people? It's quite possible. Remember that Job prayed when a period of feasting had run its course, prayed for them if perhaps they might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. What does that tell you about their lifestyle? Godly, pious, righteous at least, apparently. But he's worried about the heart. Wouldn't it be marvelous if Job spent eternity with all 20 of his children? And would spend eternity with that doubled blessing of a perfect and final relationship with each one of the 20. Now, I don't know that that actually happened, but wouldn't it be an awesome final addendum to the story of Job? Now, as I conclude now, I just want to give you a final invitation. Next week, we're going to fly over this book one more time. I'm going to preach on every single chapter in detail, all 42 of them. (laughs) So bring your lunch, bring a sleeping bag. No, I'm not doing any of that best thing I can do in closing today is to invite all of you to come to Christ, to come and trust in Christ. Only for Christians is there this final vindication. Only for Christians is there this final eternal happy ending. We're not universalists. We don't say it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how you live. We don't say that. Judgment day is coming and the justice of God will rise up 
and the wrath of God will rise up against all sins that have not been atoned for by faith in the blood of Christ. And so all that is happening here and around the world week after week as the gospel is being proclaimed is sinners are being told how they can amazingly be vindicated by a holy God saying, you are one of my children. Your sins are forgiven. Enter now into the joy of your master. All you have to do is acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent of your sins, turn away from wickedness, and turn to the mercies and the kindness of God. And let him give you that final vindication and eternal rewards through faith in Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to study, uh, not just today, but 42 chapters of truth. It's overwhelming. And Lord, I thank you for the lessons that we're going to look at, God willing, next week. Father, strengthen each one of us. Help us to realize that our time of suffering will most certainly come. Maybe it won't be as bad as Job's. It probably won't be, but it's still going to be painful. Help us to be ready to put into practice the things we've learned from this incredible book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.